Chapter six of the birthplace by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. It had made for him all the same an immense difference. It had given him an extraordinary lift, so that a certain sweet aftertaste of his freedom might, a couple of months later, have been suspected of aiding to produce for him another, and really a more considerable adventure. It was an odd way to think of it, but he had been, to his imagination, for twenty minutes in good society, that being the term that best described for him the company of people to whom he hadn't to talk, as he further phrased it, rot. It was his title to society that he had, in his doubtless awkward way, affirmed, and the difficulty was just that, having affirmed it, he couldn't take back the affirmation. Few things had happened to him in life, that is, few that were agreeable, but at least this had, and he wasn't so constructed that he could go on as if it hadn't. It was going on as if it had, however, that landed him, alas, in the situation unmistakably marked by a visit from Grant Jackson, late one afternoon towards the end of October. This had been the hour of the call of the young Americans. Every day that hour had come round, something of the deep throb of it, the successful secret, woke up. But the two occasions were, of a truth, related only by being so intensely opposed. The secret had been successful in that he had said nothing of it to Isabel, who, occupied in their own quarter while the incident lasted, had neither heard the visitors arrive nor seen them depart. It was, on the other hand, scarcely successful in guarding itself from indirect betrayals. There were two persons in the world, at least, who felt as he did. They were persons, also, who had treated him benignly, as feeling as they did, who had been ready, in fact, to overflow in gifts as a sign of it, and though they were now off in space, they were still with him sufficiently in spirit, to make him play, as it were, with the sense of their sympathy. This, in turn, made him, as he was perfectly aware, more than a shade or two reckless, so that in his reaction from the gluttony of the public for false facts, which had from the first tormented him, he fell into the habit of sailing, as he would have said, too near the wind, or in other words, all in the presence of the people, of washing his hands of the legend. He had crossed the line, he knew it, he had struck wild, they drove him to it, he had substituted by a succession of uncontrollable profanities an attitude that couldn't be understood for an attitude that but too evidently had been. This was, of course, the franker line, only he hadn't taken it, alas, for frankness, hadn't in the least really taken it, but had been simply himself caught up and disposed of by it, hurled by his fate against the bedizened walls of the temple, quite in the way of a priest possessed to excess of the god, or, more vulgarly, that of a blind bull in a china shop, an animal to which he often compared himself. He had let himself fatally go and find just for irritation, for rage, having in his predicament nothing at all to do with frankness, a luxury reserved for quite other situations. It had always been his sentiment that one lived to learn. He had learned something every hour of his life, though people mostly never knew what, in spite of its having generally been, hadn't it, at somebody's expense. What he was at present continually learning was the sense of a form of words heretofore so vain, the famous false position that had so often helped out a phrase. 
One used names in that way without knowing what they were worth. Then, of a sudden, one fine day, their meaning was bitter in the mouth. This was a truth with the relish of which his fireside hours were occupied, and he was quite conscious that a man was exposed, who looked so perpetually as if something had disagreed with him. The look to be worn at the birthplace was properly the beatific, and when once it had fairly been missed by those who took it for granted, who indeed paid sixpence for it, like the table wine in provincial France, it was compris, one would be sure to have news of the remark. News, accordingly, was what Gedge had been expecting, and what he knew, above all, had been expected by his wife, who had a way of sitting at present as with an ear for a certain knock. She didn't watch him, didn't follow him about the house, at the public hours, to spy upon his treachery, and that could touch him even though her averted eyes went through him more than her fixed. Her mistrust was so perfectly expressed by her manner of showing she trusted, that he never felt so nervous, never so tried to keep straight, as when she most let him alone. When the crowd thickened, and they had of necessity to receive together, he tried himself to get off by allowing her as much as possible the word. When people appealed to him, he turned to her, and with more of ceremony than their relation warranted. He couldn't help this either, if it seemed ironic, as to the person most concerned or most competent. He flattered himself at these moments that no one would have guessed her being his wife, especially as, to do her justice, she met his manner with a wonderful grim bravado, grim, so to say, for himself, grim by its outrageous cheerfulness for the simple-minded. The lore she did produce for them, the associations of the sacred spot that she developed, multiplied, embroidered, the things, in short, she said, and the stupendous way she said them. She wasn't a bit ashamed, for why need virtue be ever ashamed? It was virtue, for it put bread into his mouth, he, meanwhile, on his side, taking it out of hers. He had seen Grant Jackson on the October day, in the birthplace itself, the right setting, of course, for such an interview, and what occurred was that precisely when the scene had ended, and he had come back to their own sitting-room, the question she put to him for information was, have you settled it that I'm to starve? She had for a long time said nothing to him so straight, which was but a proof of her real anxiety. The straightness of Grant Jackson's visit, following on the very slight sinuosity of a note shortly before received from him, made tension show for what it was. By this time, really, however, his decision had been taken, the minutes elapsing between his reappearance at the domestic fireside and his having, from the other threshold, seen Grant Jackson's broad, well-fitted back, the back of a banker and a patriot, move away, had, though few, presented themselves to him as supremely critical. They formed, as it were, the hinge of his door, that door actually ajar so as to show him a possible fate beyond it, but which, with his hand in a spasm, thus tightening on the knob, he might either open wide or close partly and altogether. He stood in the autumn dusk in the little museum that constituted the vestibule of the temple, and there, as with a concentrated push at the crank of a windlass, he brought himself round. The portraits on the wall seemed vaguely to watch for it. It was in their august presence, kept dimly august for the moment, by Grant Jackson's impressive check of his application of a match to the vulgar gas, that the great man had uttered, as if it said all, 
his you know my dear fellow really he had managed it with the special tact of a fat man always when there was any very fine he had got most out of the time the place the setting all the little massed admonitions and symbols confronted there with his victim on the spot that he took occasion to name to him afresh as to his piety and patriotism the most sacred on earth he had given it to be understood that in the first place he was lost in amazement and that in the second he expected a single warning now to suffice not to insist too much moreover on the question of gratitude he would let his remonstrance rest if need be solely on the question of taste as a matter of taste alone but he was surely not to be obliged to follow that up poor gedge indeed would have been sorry to oblige him for he saw it was precisely to the atrocious taste of unthankfulness that the allusion was made when he said he wouldn't dwell on what the fortunate occupant of the post owed him for the stout battle originally fought on his behalf he simply meant he would that was his tact which with everything else that had been mentioned in the scene to help really had the ground to itself the day had been when gedge couldn't have thanked him enough though he had thanked him he considered almost fulsomely and nothing nothing that he could coherently or reputably name had happened since then from the moment he was pulled up, in short, he had no case, and if he exhibited, instead of one, only hot tears in his eyes, the mystic gloom of the temple either prevented his friend from seeing them, or rendered it possible that they stood for remorse. He had dried them, with the pads formed by the base of his bony thumbs, before he went in to Isabel. This was the more fortunate, as in spite of her inquiry, prompt and pointed, he but moved about the room, looking at her hard. Then he stood before the fire a little with his hands behind him, and his coat-tails divided, quite as the person in permanent possession. It was an indication his wife appeared to take in, but she put nevertheless presently another question. "'You object to telling me what he said?' "'He said, "'You know, my dear fellow, really.' "'And is that all?' "'Practically, except that I'm a thankless beast.' "'Well,' she responded, not with dissent. "'You mean that I am?' "'Are those the words he used?' she asked with a scruple. Gedge continued to think. "'The words he used were that I give away the show, and that, from several sources, it has come round to them.' "'As, of course, a baby would have known.' And then, as her husband said nothing, "'Were those the words he used?' "'Absolutely. He couldn't have used better ones.' Did he call it, Mrs. Gedge inquired, the show? Of course he did. The biggest on earth. She winced, looking at him hard. She wondered, but only for a moment. Well, it is. That it's something, Gedge went on, to have given that away. But, he added, I've taken it back. You mean you've been convinced? I mean I've been scared. At last, at last, she gratefully breathed. Oh, it was easily done. It was only two words, but here I am. Her face was now less hard for him. And what two words? You know, Mr. Gedge, that it simply won't do. That was all. But it was the way such a man says them. I'm glad, then, Mrs. Gedge frankly averred, that he is such a man. How did you ever think it could do? Well, it was my critical sense. I didn't ever know I had one till they came, and by putting me here, 
waked it up in me. Then I had, somehow, don't you see, to live with it. And I seemed to feel that, somehow or other, giving it time, and in the long run, it might, it ought to, come out on top of the heap. Now that's where, he says, it simply won't do. So must put it, I have put it, at the bottom. A very good place, then, for a critical sense. And Isabel, more placidly now, folded her work. If, that is, you can only keep it there, if it doesn't struggle up again. It can't struggle. He was still before the fire, looking round at the warm, low room, peaceful in the lamplight, with the hum of the kettle for the ear, with the curtain drawn over the leaded casement, a short moreen curtain artfully chosen by Isabel for the effect of the olden time, its virtue of letting the light within show ruddy to the street. It's dead, he went on. I killed it just now. He spoke, really, so that she wondered. Just now? There, in the other place. I strangled it, poor thing, in the dark. If you'll go out and see, there must be blood. Which, indeed, he added, on an altar of sacrifice is all right. But the place is forever spattered. I don't want to go out and see. She rested her locked hands on the needlework folded on her knee. And he knew with her eyes on him that a look he had seen before was in her face. You're off your head, you know, my dear, in a way. Then, however, more cheeringly, it's a good job it hasn't been too late. Too late to get it under? Too late for them to give you the second chance that I thank God you accept. Yes, if it had been. And he looked away as through the ruddy curtain and into the chill street. Then he faced her again. I've scarcely got over my fright yet. I mean, he went on, for you. And I mean for you. Suppose what you had come to announce to me now were that we had got the sack. How should I enjoy, do you think, seeing you turn out? Yes, out there, she added, as his eyes again moved from their little warm circle to the night of early winter on the other side of the pane, to the rare quick footsteps, to the closed doors, to the curtains drawn like their own, behind which the small flat town, intrinsically dull, was sitting down to supper. He stiffened himself as he warmed his back. He held up his head, shaking himself a little, as if to shake the stoop out of his shoulders, but he had to allow she was right. What would have become of us? What, indeed, we should have begged our bread, or I should be taking in washing. He was silent a little. I'm too old. I should have begun sooner. Oh, God forbid, she cried. The pinch, he pursued, is that I can do nothing else. Nothing whatever, she agreed with elation. Whereas here, if I cultivate it, I perhaps can still lie, but I must cultivate it. Oh, you old dear! And she got up to kiss him. I'll do my best, he said. End of chapter 6